Former president and serial molester Bill Clinton is at it again. This time, he managed to corner blandly sinister Attorney General Loretta Lynch in a private plane in Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport. This despite the fact that Lynch will soon have to decide whether to indict Clinton's wino, or wife in name only, Hillary. Lynch told reporters, quote, I feel so ashamed. He chased me around the plane, grabbing at my principles and squeezing my integrity. Even when I tried to run away, he pinched my probity, shouting, come on, admit it, you love it, don't you? Lynch went on to say, quote, I had gotten dressed for the meeting in my prettiest look of honesty and carefully applied a mask of incorruptibility. By the time I left the plane, my dress was in tatters and my incorruptible appearance was running down my face in messy streaks. I felt so humiliated, unquote. Longtime defenders of Bill Clinton's behavior with women rushed to the former president's defense yet again. James Carville, one-time Clinton consigliere, issued a statement saying, this is just another bimbo eruption. Drag a $100 bill through the Department of Justice and you never know what you'll find. Feminists who have also routinely defended Clinton's abuse of women once again stood up for him. Susan Faludi, author of Backlash <clears throat> and the sequel, Ooh, give me some more of that backlash, baby, wrote an op-ed saying, if anything, it sounds to me like Loretta put the moves on Bill, not the other way around. Alleged journalist Nina Burley said, quote, for a man as powerful and attractive and sexy and appealing and sensual and handsome as Bill Clinton, I would gladly strip off my integrity and principles any day if I had them. The New York Times, a former newspaper, also followed its usual Clinton playbook by simply not reporting on the Loretta Lynch molestation for three days until forced to by the public outcry. Times publisher Beelzebub Disingenuous III said, quote, Normally, if we don't print it, it doesn't exist, but somehow this escaped into reality. We must get to work reinforcing our magical membrane of deception so that only pro-Democrat lies become truth through our supernatural powers, unquote. Democratic nominee for felonious president Hillary Clinton reacted to the Lynch assault exactly as she had during her husband's previous dalliances and rapes, privately referring to Lynch as a bimbo, a slut, and a whore, adding, and thank God she is, otherwise I would already be behind bars. Republican nominee for absurd president Donald Trump dashed off a scorching tweet about the incident, saying, quote, Bill Clinton is a rapist, a liar, and a skunk. You gotta admire his game, unquote. As for Loretta Lynch herself, she has now vowed to quietly return to private life right after she gets Hillary off the hook for her blatantly criminal behavior. Lynch added, quote, in spite of what Bill did to me, I still love him so, so much. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> that that kind of went out of date as I was driving to work, but what can I do? I, I can't write them in and drive the car at the same time. So we've got breaking news. You know, I do everything I can to avoid breaking news. I'm not the sort of person who likes, I'm the sort of person who likes to do anything but go off half-cocked. But we're going to have to talk about this. As I was coming in, uh, James Comey, the F, head of the FBI, gave his little press conference where he uh, said that he is not going to recommend criminal charges against criminal Hillary. Uh, Hillary immediately climbed to the top of a gas tower shouting, top of the world, Ma, they'll never get me alive, and then exploded in a ball of flame. Uh, this is the end. This is the end of, a, you know, I've got to sleep here. I don't know what I'm, what can I do, you know? I mean, it's like a three-day Clavenless weekend. There's nothing but death, destruction, and corruption. So, but I hope you had 
a fabulous fourth. I'm sorry if there wasn't enough for you to eat, but I ate it all. That was, I think, the problem. I don't know. I don't know what comes af- over me at those barbecues. It's like I'm very, I'm very controlled eater. You know, I have to be a controlled eater and a controlled drinker and all this stuff. But once you put a hot dog, a barbecued hot dog in my mouth, it's like I had one. I might as well have sixteen. You know, it's like, what's the difference? You know, it's like that's the difference between a thousand calories and forty thousand calories. It's, what's the difference. So that was the way I spent my 4th of July while the world was going down the drain. All right, we're live on Facebook for 15 minutes, but when we get to the dirty part, you'll already be gone because we sign off at 15. When we get to the pornographic stuff, uh, you'll be gone because we sign off at 15, and then you can come to the Daily Wire and hear us, or you can subscribe, and that way you could be in tomorrow. It's a short week because tomorrow is already the mailbag, so if you want to ask questions for the mailbag, you got to subscribe, and then you can also see what we're doing because we are doing the filthiest stuff imaginable while we're, if you're just listening, you're missing the whole thing. All right. James Comey. So this finally the long, long saga of Hillary Clinton's criminal investigation, or as she called it, security review, has now come kind of to a conclusion. I mean, there's, I still got to go through the Justice Department. James Comey got up today, and he starts out, the first thing he says, and, and listen, I, I, I'm not going to do conspiracy stuff. I'm just going to put forward narratives, because I, I have really just heard this. Literally, as I'm coming in, I walk through the door, and I'm reacting right off the top of my head, and I'm not going to say, you know, this one did this or this one did that. I'm just going to put forward things as it strikes me right away. The first thing Comey says is, no one knows what I'm about to say. So already, like, Comey has this incredible reputation of everybody in Washington. He probably has the best reputation for integrity and honesty, and we have nothing here to uh, argue with that. We have no information that uh, pokes a hole in that at all. But he starts out by saying no one knows what I'm about to say. A little tough for me to believe because CNN had a source reporting it saying there was going to be uh, no charges, a recommendation of no charges. And the fact that Obama said in advance that he was going to be campaigning with Hillary today. I cannot believe, I cannot believe he did not know what was going to happen. I can't believe he was going to be standing there with his pants off, essentially, while the FBI is saying, you know, arrest that woman. Like, can you imagine Obama standing at the podium while two feds come in with the hats and all that and just pick her up under the arms and carry her away? That was never, ever going to happen. So, I, you know, that's a little tough for me to believe. Now, here is Comey. We'll do the first cut of him describing at length what they did in this investigation into Hillary's weird private email server. With respect to the thousands of emails we found that were not among those produced to the State Department, agencies have concluded that three of those were classified at the time they were sent or received, one at the secret level and two at the confidential level. There were no additional top-secret emails found, and finally, none of those we found have since been upclassified. I should add here that we found no evidence that any of the additional work-related emails were intentionally deleted in an effort to conceal them in some way. Our assessment is that, like many email users, Secretary Clinton periodically deleted emails or emails were purged from her system when devices were changed. Because she was not using a government account or even a commercial account like Gmail, there was no archiving at all of her emails. So it's not surprising that we discovered emails that were not on Secretary Clinton's system in 2014 when she produced those 30,000-some emails to state. 
It could also be that some of the additional work-related emails that we've recovered were among those deleted as personal by her lawyers when they reviewed and sorted her emails for production in late 2014. The lawyers doing the sorting for Secretary Clinton in 2014 did not individually read the content of all of her emails as we did for those available to us. Instead, they relied on header information and they used search terms to try to find all work-related emails among the reportedly more than 60,000 that were remaining on her system at the end of 2014. It's highly likely that their search missed some work-related emails and that we later found them, for example, in the mailboxes of other officials or in the Slack space of a server. It's also likely that there are other work-related emails that they did not produce to state and that we did not find elsewhere and that are now gone because they deleted all emails they did not produce to state and the lawyers then cleaned their devices in such a way as to preclude complete forensic recovery. I'm sorry. That, does, that, does that not sound like a criminal organization to you? I mean, I, I'm sorry. Like, you know, the lawyers are dumping. First, first of all, we have to take the premise that she's using a server and an email system that she shouldn't be using, right? So these things are disappearing. Then the lawyers go through and search through the stuff that is personal, that they think is personal, just by doing this, an email search. Like, I sometimes clean out my emails, and I do a little search, you know, this one I don't need, this one I don't need. They're <laughs> sending out this thing, and if they decide not to send it to the investigators, they delete it and then scrub their email, just like anyone would do, you know, just like I sometimes dip my computer and lie to make sure that no one knows what I'm doing. I mean, come on, really? It just sounds, I mean, even what he is describing sounds to me criminal in and of itself. It sounds to me that the lawyers should have been hauled up, if, if nobody else, for like destroying this stuff. It's destroying evidence. And what, what's on the, per, what was, it was the personal stuff she was probably trying to protect, as she herself said, essentially, that she was trying to protect her personal stuff, where she was like, you know, selling uranium to the Soviets in return for donations to the Clinton. That's personal. Hey, that's personal. That's my private $100 million that I'm taking to make, to, you know, to sell, you know, my, my favors as Secretary of State. All right, so he goes on, and then he went into a long period. We have a, just a shortcut of it, but he went into a long period where he really did slap her around, you know, and I think, I, I, don't, I don't know how to put it exactly. He goes on to say that this was negligent, basically. Here's, here's just a brief cut of this middle section of his speech. Although we did not find clear evidence that Secretary Clinton or her colleagues intended to violate laws governing the handling of classified information, there is evidence that they were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. Now, Here's the thing about this, okay? In, in law, the intent is, intent is very important. If I accidentally walk into your house because it's the house next to mine and we're living in, you know, it's one of those suburbs where all the houses look alike, that is not breaking and entering. I have to mean to break and enter into your house. You know, even if you, if you scream at me and call the police and I'm like, oh, geez, you know, I just wandered in. I'm an absent-minded artist. I do this kind of stuff. That, that's not a, a crime. 
But there is such a thing as criminal negligence, being so negligent that it doesn't matter what you intended to do. We were talking before I came on about some clown who left his infant in an overheated car and then tried to cool it down by sticking it in the freezer and killed the kid. That's criminal negligence. That's being so stupid, doing something so negligent. If I leave a gun, a cocked gun around where the toddler is, that can be criminal negligence. You can say, you know, hey, dude, you didn't mean to kill the kid, but you don't leave a gun and loaded gun in front of a toddler. That's why you have safety precautions. The law here, the U.S. Code says whoever, being an officer, employee, contractor, or consultant of the United States, and by virtue of his office, employment, position, or contract, becomes possessed of documents or materials containing classified information of the United States, whoever knowingly removes such documents or materials without authority and with the intent to retain such documents or materials at an un authorized location shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for not more than one year or both. So, you know, I'm not a lawyer. It just sounds to me like there was criminal neg negligence here. Again, you know, I'm not, I'm not impugning Comey's integrity and these things look different from the uh, eyes of an investigator, but obviously he's not coming in all gangbusters on the Democratic nominee for president. He is not opening fire here. And when, you know, you're, it's a little hard to believe that Loretta Lynch is going to now come out of her romantic entanglement with Bill and suddenly say, like, I don't care what the FBI says. I'm tracking this criminal down to her lair. I'm, you know, I'm kicking the damn door. Forget the FBI. It's just not going to happen. That is not going to happen. So he is saying, all right, and now let's, let's conclude with what he says. This is his recommendation. Although there is evidence of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information, our judgment is that no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. Prosecutors necessarily weigh a number of factors before deciding whether to bring charges. There are obvious considerations like the strength of the evidence, especially regarding intent. Responsible decisions also consider the context of a person's actions and how similar situations have been handled in the past. In looking back at our investigations into the mishandling or removal of classified information, we cannot find a case that would support bringing criminal charges on these facts. All the cases prosecuted involved some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information or vast quantities of information exposed in such a way as to support an inference of intentional misconduct or indications of disloyalty to the United States or efforts to obstruct justice. We do not see those things here. To be clear, this is not to suggest that in similar circumstances, a person who engaged in this activity would face no consequences. To the contrary, those individuals are often subject to security or administrative sanctions, but that's not what we're deciding now. As a result, Although the Department of Justice makes final decisions on matters like this, we are expressing to justice our view that no charges are appropriate in this case. All right. So, so what he says is, you know, he could bring charges, but in the past, judging by, you know, previous cases, they have not brought charges without seeing that the person was obviously trying to obstruct justice 
or sell secrets. By the way, he does go on at one point to say that they have no evidence that enemies of the United States hacked her email. But given the uh, technical efficiency of the enemies of the United States, it's thoroughly possible that they hacked her emails and left no traces, that they're totally capable of doing that. And he suggests that this was an open field so that basically he said, yeah, if I had to, if I were a betting man, I mean, this is my translation, but basically he said, if I were a betting man, I would bet these were hacked by the Russians. And since a lot of this has been released by, you know, Russian uh, people with Russian connections, there's no question that this stuff was hacked. But he's saying that she didn't do it intentionally. There was not this intent. She's not going, <coughs> he's not going for the um, uh, criminal negligence idea of it. Now, some of you, I mean, my mind immediately flashed back to General David Petraeus. That was what the, the first thing that comes into my mind. Because if you're going back to people who gave out classified information, now, there are two big differences with Petraeus. And remember, he was they threatened him with a felony, and he pleaded guilty, uh, ultimately, to a, a lesser charge. He pleaded guilty to, to a misdemeanor. And so you say to yourself, and they were still making threats against him, so you say, say to yourself, what's the difference? Well, one thing, Petraeus openly lied to the FBI. He sat down and lied to their faces about this, covering up his affair that he was having. He had an affair with the woman who was writing a biography of him. He gave her notebooks with classified information in it. Uh, he lied to the FBI. But the other thing is, and this is, now, again, this is not a conspiracy theory. I don't do conspiracy theories, but it is a narrative. Cheryl Atkinson was one of the best investigative reporters at CBS News. She went after George W. Bush relentlessly. She was constantly getting stories uh, into the press about him. When Obama was elected, her story started to suddenly die. And one of the key stories, uh, Fast and Furious, she couldn't get these things on the CBS News. They were editing stuff out. They were rejiggering her information. She finally had to quit simply to get information out about the Obama administration because CBS was protecting Barack Obama from her stories of corruption. One of her key stories, one of the stories she followed more closely than ever, was the Benghazi cover-up. And one of the stories she had, and this is in her book, right? This is in her book before uh, Petraeus the Petraeus scandal broke. This is a quote from her book. Meanwhile, another controversy is waiting to boil over within the Obama administration, a sex scandal involving the CIA's Petraeus. This is, remember, Petraeus then became head of the CIA. The timing, she says, is intriguing. Only after the Benghazi attacks as Petraeus's loyalty to the administration falls into question does everything turn sour for the spy chief. In the immediate aftermath of the Benghazi attacks, Petraeus first draws ire from some administration colleagues for not reading from the Carney Obama Clinton Rice book of fiction. They're all out there saying, oh yeah, it's a video, uh, you know, because remember, Obama is selling that he's beaten terrorism and here is terrorism writ large in Benghazi for Americans dead terrible attacks, really violent attacks on the CIA compound, warnings, pleas for help, all of this ignored by Clinton and the State Department. And they come out and say, well, it was a video and there was a spontaneous eruption. And it turns out, no, of course, it's an Al-Qaeda-like attack. And they knew it all along. Petraeus wouldn't lie. Petraeus kept doing this. He really ticked people off. He went in to a House Intelligence Committee at a classified briefing and said right away, that we have full information of suspected al-Qaeda links in this attack. And that's when, because they knew a year before, they knew he was having this affair and passing classified information, that's when suddenly the noose pulls tight. You know, 
this is a dirty administration, and it has made all the dirtier. It's it's funny because you know Obama's not a money corrupt guy like Clinton is. Hillary Clinton is money corrupt, and that is the maybe the lowest form of corruption, but not the only form of corruption. Barack Obama is a true ideologue. He believes that he can uh, supersede the Constitution because what he is doing is so right. It's so right. If only Thomas Jefferson, if only Madison knew, you know, that, that he was that Obama, that someone as wise as Obama was going to take charge of the country, they would not have put all this constitutional foo in his way and would have let him just, you know, declare what is right, what kind of country, who we are, who we are. He would just declare who we are. Petraeus got in the way of that narrative, and he went down the drain. Obviously, Clinton lied and lied and lied, and he, she has been out on that campaign trail playing this footsie dance you know, that she does, which is she's going to save the economy, but the economy's great. She's going to change everything Obama does, but Obama's great. You know, and now Obama's out there with her because he's got nobody else to defend his legacy. There was no way this was going to come to an indictment, I really think. You know, I think that Comey, I, I kind of have some sympathy for what he's saying in the sense that if you're going to kill the queen, you got to kill the queen. You can't just go after the Democratic nominee for president with, uh, with criminal negligence, you know, with a fine. <laughs> She's going to be fine. He says, you know, she deserves, he basically says she deserves to be sanctioned, but he ain't going to do it. So that's the corruption. Uh, <laughs> let's let's move on to the death. All right, we'll talk more about this tomorrow as more information comes in and more quotes come in. And this was really happening as I walked through the door. You know, does it stink to high heaven of conspiracy? No, it doesn't. I mean, that's that's not the point. The point is that when you are in an administration that takes care of its own and punishes its enemies, punishes them with the IRS, punishes them with FBI investigations, but protects those who stand up for them in the clinches when you're running for re-election and you need somebody to lie about Benghazi, Hillary is there. Hillary is there, and she is going to get the full protection of this administration. Whether Comey is a part of that or he just realizes that he is up against the wall, that he would essentially have to find her, you know, not with a smoking gun, but with like blood-drenched fingernails and a body at her feet, you know, maybe he just thought, look, it's not worth it to go into this controversy in an election year. It's hard to know what he's thinking. Boy, oh boy, that just that to me, just the description of what the law, how the lawyers deleted the email. If I'm a Fed, if I'm a G-man, I'm going after him. But you know, this is the way it comes out. Obviously, obviously, Hillary's narrative is going to be like, you know, I'm clean, I'm clean, I've been cleaned, I've been healed. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, you just skirted criminal prosecution, baby. But she's gonna, she's gonna be thrilled. All right, so that's that's the one thing that's happening. The other thing is, that is happening is over the weekend, over the Clavenless, this this heart wrenching Clavenless weekend. While we were celebrating the 4th of July, most of the world was being blown to bits by uh, ISIS. So that's, I mean, in Baghdad, they had the deadliest bombing. This is Saturday, deadliest bombing in, in several years, killing somewhere close to 200 people. Some of the bodies, over 80 of the bodies charred so badly uh, that they'll have to be DNA tested just to be identified. There are three suicide bombings in a 24-hour period in Saudi Arabia, uh, one near the American consulate. And there was, of course... Uh, um, the the t attack just as the weekend was coming, the attack in Turkey at Ataturk International Airport. Uh, you know, CIA Director John Brennan, it does seem like CIA directors have this tendency to go off the reservation, like they have so much information on people, I think they, they feel like they can't be touched. Uh, that was, remember, that was what Petraeus was. Uh, John Brennan is telling the simple truth about these attacks, talking about the attack in Turkey, says they're coming after us too. 
as I've said recently, we've made, I think, some significant progress along with the coalition partners uh, in Syria and Iraq, where most of the ISIS members are resident right now. Uh, but the ISIS's ability to continue to propagate its narrative as well as to incite and carry out these attacks, I think we still have a ways to go before we're able to say that we have made some significant progress against them. And the United States is in the coalition to try to destroy as much of this poison inside of Syria and Iraq as possible. So uh, it would be surprising to me that uh, ISIL is not trying to hit us, uh, both in the region as well as in our homeland. You know, so he's saying they're hitting around the world and they're coming after us, and there's a debate among experts whether they're doing this because they're losing territory in Iraq and Syria, and they are losing territory, ISIS is losing territory in Iraq and Syria, or whether they do it anyway. This is part of the plan to send out, uh, you know, to send out tendrils into the world of their philosophy and maybe pick up a guy in Orlando here and send over some, you know, they, the administration keeps calling these lone wolf attacks. There are no lone wolf attacks. This is a poisonous octopus-like philosophy. You know, Brett Stevens writes uh, today, he, was, he writes about the fact that attacks in Israel are somehow separated off from these attacks around the world. Uh, this horrible, horrible attack in, where this 13-year-old girl was slaughtered in her bed uh, by a Palestinian terrorist. And uh, in fact, let's let's hear ben, Benjamin uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, telling Israel about this horrible attack. This morning, a terrorist sneaked into the bedroom of a 13-year-old girl, Halil Yaffa Ariel. He murdered young Halil in cold blood. The picture of her blood-stained room is almost too hard to see. There's a teddy bear still on her bed a red beanbag chair, some pictures on the wall, shoes tightly packed in a bin next to her bunk bed. Why would any person do this? You don't murder a sleeping child for peace. You don't slit a little girl's throat to protest a policy you don't like. You do this because you've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed by a warped ideology that teaches you that this child isn't human. We will not let barbarism defeat humanity. There is no middle ground between beautiful Halel and our unspeakably evil murderer. What he's trying to say, and what I'm trying to say, and what I've been trying to say for a long time, is that it's all one thing. It's not one thing in Orlando and one thing in Baghdad, and one thing in Israel, and another thing somewhere else. It's all one thing. And, you know, it, it, the, it, it is Islamism. That is the face of evil in our time. Islamism is the face of evil in our time. And the question is, does it grow out naturally from Islam, or is it a cancer on Islam? That's something that has to be debated openly by experts and by people who know. That is the question. But it's all the face of evil. Which brings me to the other thing that you allowed to happen over this Clavenless weekend. I don't know how I can keep watch over you, but you allowed Eli Wiesel to die. Uh, he was an old man, and it was uh, his time. But, um, you know, Eli Wiesel was a voice uh, for humanity, but also uh, he was obviously, uh, he survived the death camps, the Nazi death camps in uh, Auschwitz and Buchenwald. 
and he wrote this incredible book, Night. Um, and and that's, gonna, that's my stuff I like, is this book, Night. And the thing is, Night is just a very flat, very um, monotone description of what happened to him as a little boy. He was given the Nobel Peace Prize, which of course has now been rendered meaningless by having given it to Barack Obama, but at the time maybe it meant something. And here's a little piece of his speech as he talks about his being sent to the death camps and his family, of course, being wiped out. I remember it happened yesterday or eternities ago. A young Jewish boy discovered the kingdom of night. I remember his bewilderment. I remember his anguish. It all happened so fast. The ghetto, the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of our people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. I remember he asked his father, can this be true? This is the 20th century, not the Middle Ages. Who would allow such crimes to be committed? How could the world remain silent? And now, he says, the boy is turning to me, the young Eli Wiesel is turning to the present Eli Wiesel, saying, tell me, he asks, what have you done with my future? What have you done with your life? And I tell him that I've tried, that I've tried to keep memory alive, that I've tried to fight those who would forget, because if we forget, we are guilty, we are accomplices. And then I explain to him how naive we were that the world did not know and remain silent. You know, part of forgetting uh, is romanticism, is sentiment. One of the reasons one of my least favorite films in the world is Schindler's List. Uh, you know, I know that's a terrible thing to say. People think Schindler's List, what a wonderful, wonderful movie. And of course, Spielberg is a spectacular director. He's a, he's a talented, talented director. Not a very profound thinker. He has a philosophy that he expresses uh, both in um, uh, Saving Private Ryan and in Schindler's List that this kind of crummy Freudian idea that the Nazis identified Jews with their internal feminine self and were trying to kill that femininity in themselves. It's, some, it's, it's Freudian theory. Uh, you know, fine. But it's, it's putting aside, it's rendering to psychology what belongs to morality. It's putting aside the face of evil because that's what this is. The story of night, the, the reason I find Schindler's List a bad movie is because it places an act of Gentile mercy at the center of the Holocaust. There was no mercy. It allows you to romanticize and dream that you would have been the one who stood up for the Jews. You would not have stood up for the Jews. You would have stood by silently while they, while they were killed, and so would I have, and so would we all. That's, that's the lie of, of that kind of sentiment, and it's a way that humanity uses, uses to forget the utter, utter blackness and darkness that occurs when evil is allowed to run free. And that is why, you know, it's not for hatred of Muslim people, certainly not. It's certainly not why people like me keep crying out that we have to name the enemy, that we have to point to the enemy, that we have to challenge the people who are surrounded by the enemy to stand up to them, because evil just, you know, you know I say this both to the alt-right and to the Obama left, you know, evil loves silence, evil loves irony. It loves irony. It loves when you're so sophisticated that you don't know there's such a thing as evil, that you can laugh, that you can make anti-Semitic jokes in your, you know, private place because you are so, you're so elite and you're so sophisticated that you can make these jokes, but you don't really mean them, you know, it's just, listen, evil loves that stuff. It loves it. Evil requires a seriousness of purpose and courage to stand up to it. Eli Wiesel had that. Read Night if you haven't read it. It's, you can read it in a day. Uh, it's so short. 
And yet, it's so profound. When you look into that darkness, you realize that, that life is serious, you know? I'm somebody who loves to joke around and kid around, but at the edges, life is not fooling around. It is serious stuff. Evil is out there. It is out there in the hearts of our public officials when they allow corruption to spread. It is out there in the hearts of our public officials when they will not name the face of, of death that is coming after us. And it's out there, of course, in the people who deal death around the world and here as well. Eli Wiesel stood up against it. God bless him. I'm sure he will. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. We're going to have a lot to talk about in this short week, but we will be here to talk about it. Be here tomorrow.